you know, there's nothing like a good mystery. We're suckers for mystery as humans, aren't we? I mean, we, we love it. Mystery novels, mystery movies, the idea of some kind of a, uh, a tension developing through a storyline and then being relieved at the end and figuring out what it, was, what it was all about. We live in a really mysterious world, if you know that. Uh, it's mysterious because we don't really understand all the things around us. A lot of things are mysteries to us. There's still a lot of science and, and philosophy, a lot of things that we still don't understand. And that mystery creates a sense of curiosity in us, and that curiosity drives us to do amazing things, isn't it? I mean, th- I think about, for instance, I think about all the scientific discovery that's happened in, in, in our lifetime and even in this century and in this millennia. It's like it's driven by this mystery of figuring out how the body works and figuring out how the sciences work. Things like going to the moon, for instance, it was, it was done out of curiosity, the mystery. What's up there? And how do, how do we, what if we could get there? And what would happen once we got there? And when we step off the lunar lander, are we going to sink right into the dust? I mean, it's just curiosity and mystery. The world is full of it. You know, we get that when we're kids, and then as we grow up, we kind of start to forget that, that the world is actually entirely mysterious. Um, and being curious is, is really, it's an important part of, of living. But the greatest mystery in the world, there's a single mystery that's greater than any other one. And that is the, the mystery of why things aren't the way that they are supposed to be. I mean, that's, that's just the question that, if we're being honest as humans, like that's the question that everybody wants to understand is like, why are we not as we ought to be? Why does the world feel like it's missing something? Like we know, have programmed into our DNA, into our, uh, the fibers of our being that there's something missing. Everyone agrees about that. And every culture since the beginning of time has, has, have, uh, has given their best answer to that. Some people call it the utopian vision. Every culture, every thinker, every philosophy, every worldview has a utopian vision. In other words, it's their idea of what's going to fix the world. And to have a utopian vision, you have to identify first what's wrong with the world. So think about, take our election right now, and I'm not... You know, it's, it's a contested thing that we're in the middle of. But take our election. What you have essentially is you have two competing worldviews. And like tectonic plates, these worldviews couldn't be more opposite. And they're pulling in opposite directions. And as they're pulling in opposite directions, it's creating friction and tension. And at some point, it just feels like it's going to burst, right? We're all feeling that. But at the essence of that is two competing worldviews. Two worldviews that are saying, we know what's wrong with the world and we're going to fix it. And the other side says, no, 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 it's not that, it's this. Both sides are claiming to have the answer to the brokenness of the world. Both sides are claiming to have the answer to the mystery of why things aren't the way they are. But here's the problem. The problem is that neither side is really being honest about how deep and systemic the brokenness of the world is. Because policy doesn't really fix these things. Okay, so, there, so there's empty promises. Like if, if, if our administration is in control, guess what will happen? We will fix it. Okay, but here's the reality. I was going to the bathroom this week, you might like to know, um, and I saw something that was just a perfect representation of the world's inability to deliver on its promises. You ready? <laughs> Isn't that funny? I go to the bathroom and I'm looking at that. I'm like, oh, rest assured. Hmm. There's no... What do you call them? Butt gaskets? I don't know. What, what are they? Like their toilet seat covers? There's no, so, so this is the perfect picture of the utopian vision. Every human says, I know how we can fix the world. And they say, rest assured, we'll fix it. But they don't deliver ultimately on their promises. And so 
I'm not getting political here. I'm just saying don't forget that unless you're honest about the reality of how deep and broken the world is and what actually is the brokenness of our world, you're not really going to be able to fix it. So what is the brokenness of the world? What is the mystery of the brokenness of the world? Well, we know the answer, don't we? Christians know the answer. The answer is that creation has been severed from creator. That is the mystery of the brokenness of the world. See, God created his creation, his cosmos. He created it like a vessel. What is a vessel used for? It's used to be filled. And he created it to be filled with his glory. It was, it was, it was for the purpose of being animated with his glory, his beauty, his presence. He built it to populate it. Okay? He built it to populate it. That's why in the garden, the first command was go forth and multiply. Fill the earth with God-glorifying, image-bearing human beings. And those little God-glorifying, image-bearing human beings will fill the earth with glory. Because that was God's plan for creation. But what has happened? There's been a severing of the purpose. The purpose of this earth has been severed. And so we have the shell of the vessel, but we don't have the thing to fill it. Now, we know that because we have God's word. But the world knows it on a different level. They know it because they feel it. They feel it. Something's missing here. Something's missing here. And so they try to fill it with other things. We have the leftover animations, but we don't have the animator. Does that make sense? We have this capacity for eternity, but we're trapped inside of a world of limitations and death. We, we were like a car without the gas. In fact, sometimes this world reminds me of like a bunch of cavemen that found a car. And they're like, oh, what do we do with this thing? You're like, it's a cave. And the other guy's like, it's not a cave. It's an animal trap, you know? And they're like arguing about it. That's kind of like worldviews. It's like, we know how to fix this. We know how to fix this. And in reality, you don't know because you don't know who made it. And you don't know why they made it. And not only do you not know why you made it, you don't have any gas. That's the world we live in. Broken, people don't know what it is, what it was used for, and they don't have the gas. And, and, and so as Christians, we understand, though, what the deep brokenness of this world is. There's a particular biblical thread, um, this mysterious biblical thread that I think is so fascinating. It runs throughout the Bible. And it's, it's this, this particular topic of God filling spaces. God's desire to fill spaces. The first space that God created to fill was the garden. The garden was a space, and God desired to fill it. Some people see the garden as the first temple, version 1.0 temple. And the point of the garden was to be this space where heaven, God's realm, and earth, our realm, both universes, if you will, or both spaces, if you will, could, could connect and overlap. And so God created the garden so he could be in it with his people, Right? It was the first temple. God dwelt in this space. He walked in the cool of the garden, which I think was actually Christ walking in the cool of the garden. But then when sin entered and the fall happened, what happened? The garden, the space that God had created to fill with his glory was cut off from humanity. He kicked him out. And not only did he kick him out, he put an angel there to guard him to keep him from coming back in. Which teaches us that we are now prohibited as humans by nature from being in the midst of the glory of God. The space that he created is now disconnected and it's broken. 
The, the space that God designed to be filled with his goodness is now filled with everything the opposite. Sin, death, pain, evil, darkness. But that wasn't the last temple. That was the first temple, the garden. Uh, then God made a second temple because God's good. And he wants to fill with his space. He wants, or he wants to fill spaces with his glory. That's what he does. So he creates a second temple. We think of it as the tabernacle, right? And the tabernacle was basically like the garden. It was another space that God created so that his glory could be um, in the same place as his creation, so that the two could be made one. So God picked another Adam named Abraham, version 2.0, and he he said, I'm going to start over with you. I'm going to create another generation, and those are the Jews, right? Israel. And in Israel, he created the tabernacle, this place that he could be with them. And the imagery in the tabernacle is very garden-like, right? It has a veil to keep anyone out of the Holy Holies other than one person, the Holy of Holies, the holy place, the place where God's presence dwelt. And so it's just like the garden. There's still a veil there. There's still a disconnect, a break between where humans dwell and where God's true, holy, pure, magnificent presence dwells. And so um, only a few of the Levite priests could go into the tabernacle, and then once a year, only one priest could go into the holy place. So God is filling a particular space on earth with his glory, but it's only in that space that it's filling. The glory of the Lord doesn't leave the Holy of Holies. It stays in that space because that's a clean space, a space where sin has been atoned for temporarily. That was the second temple. So Israel solidified this tabernacle and they turned it into a temple. Solomon had the privilege of building the temple, and it was this magnificent, beautiful thing, and it really became the crown jewel of the Israel, Israel's identity, the temple. The problem was is that there was only 50 years in the history of Israel where there wasn't an idol in the holy place. They prostituted out the temple, the place that God made to fill with his space. They filled it with the anti-God. They filled it with idols. They filled it with sinful things. And God allowed this for many hundreds of years. And finally, he had it. He said, okay, you guys, I've had enough of this. You've been filling my space with sin and wickedness, so you're going to go to seed now. He allowed the Babylonians to come in and destroy the temple, flatten it. Gone. And the, and the, the, the Israelites were confused by this. Well, God, didn't you want to create a space where we could meet with you? And he did. He did. He, he did want that. So 70 years go by in the, the, the Babylonian exile. Israel's kicked out of their homeland. They're, they're sitting in Babylon waiting for some of these promises that God had made to be fulfilled. And then we get the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, where Zerubbabel and Esther get commissioned to go back into Israel um, and rebuild the temple. And it seems like it's this victorious moment where where God is going to again meet and connect with humans. And so they build the temple um, and they try to rebuild it the way it was. But if you remember the story, there was mixed signals, mixed feelings from the people about the new temple. You see, the, the, the young people were like, whoo, this is great. We have a temple again. The older people that remembered Solomon's temple, what did they do? They wept and they cried. Because they, they just, they knew it wasn't what it used to be. In the whole Old Testament, it's, it's like it's in a minor key. It just kind of has a sadness to it. There's just, it's not quite ever what it's meant to be. Israel never lived up to what they were supposed to be. The temple never lived up to what it was meant to be. And God's trying to get the world back to this garden state where we're in his presence and we're communing with him. But every single thing he does, it just sort of seems to fall 
short, and there's mystery there. How is God going to repopulate, reanimate his creation with his presence and his glory? How is he going to do that? So 400 years go by of silence. God doesn't speak. And in that 400 years, Herod comes in and he rebuilds the temple with you know, way, way bigger, way more uh, glorious, way more magnificent. But at this point, the temple was run basically by thieves. They were ripping people off, charging them exorbitant amounts to come in and, and worship. And so, so there's this, this tension, this mystery that we find all throughout the Old Testament of, okay, in the garden, God was going to fill the earth with his presence, and it's just not happening. And how is it going to happen? There's a mystery there. Now, in Ezekiel chapter 36, I just want to give you an example of one of the places that the Old Testament prophets said God was going to refill the earth with his presence. Here's what the prophet Ezekiel says, right in the middle of the Babylonian captivity. He says, I, the Lord, will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. Note that phrase, we'll come back to it. And which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know, the nations will know that I am the Lord. In other words, I'm going to refill the creation with the creator, declares the Lord God. When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes, I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the countries, and bring you into your own land, and I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. Remember, that's why they're exiled, for their idolatry. I will give you a new heart. A new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit, in other words, my presence, within you. In other words, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fill this world again with my presence. I'm going to do it and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So in the Old Testament, there's this tension because God has promised that he will repopulate the earth with his glory. But yet, Christ steps into a world completely confused by that mystery. Christ steps into a Jerusalem and Israel that was completely confused by how that was going to happen. This mystery remained unanswered. Now, it's in that exact moment that a young man named Saul, who had spent his entire life studying the Old Testament scriptures, he probably had what we would call the equivalent of two or three doctorates, he spoke multiple languages, had the entire Old Testament and the commentaries memorized. And he was trying to solve the mystery. That's what the Pharisees and the scribes did. They studied the scriptures to try to solve the mystery. How is God going to answer his promises? That's all couldn't figure it out. He couldn't figure it out. And while he was on his way to do what he thought was right, to kill Christians, the mystery found Saul. The mystery found Saul. He was trying to find the mystery, couldn't find it. And then the mystery found him. And the mystery of how God was going to repopulate the earth with his glory was revealed to Saul. It was revealed to him and it changed everything about him. He went from being um, somebody on a career track towards Phariseeism, very promising, bright and shining star. He, he, he took a, a hard right from that or even a 180 from that and he began devoting his life entirely to the mystery that had been revealed to him. The mystery of how God was going to repopulate the earth with his glory. Paul lived for it. And it's with that backdrop that we dive into our text for this morning. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Paul writes to the church at Colossae. And I want you to hear Paul's love for the mystery 
in his stewardship for the mystery. I want you to hear it in his words. I'm just going to read the whole passage. Verse 24. Now, Paul says, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Now listen, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. Laodicea was just a neighboring town right next door. And for all who have not seen my face, seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's what? Mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order in the firmness of your faith in Christ. Do you hear it in his tone? Paul is consumed with the mystery He's, he's, he's studied his whole life trying to figure out how God was going to answer the promise the promise to repopulate the earth with his glory. He couldn't figure it out. And then the mystery found Paul, and it changed him. It changed everything about him. And now it's seeping and dripping off of his language as he expresses what he does in ministry. He says, I want you to get the mystery, because the mystery is the power to transform you. So what, what is the mystery? What is the answer to the mystery, he defines it in verse 27, clear as day. Look at it. In fact, if you have a highlighter, I would highlight it. This is, an inc- this is good Bible right here, man. This is incredible. Verse 27, to them God chose to make known how great the gen- to the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is, are you ready? What is the mystery? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul says, that's the mystery. That's the answer. That's how God chose to repopulate the earth with his glory. Christ in you, saints. Christ in you, believers, the hope of glory. Now, we've got to break down that phrase. What does that mean? What's Paul talking about? If we double-click on it, there is so much that we could say. But what Paul's trying to communicate here, what Paul's trying to get here, is that though there was a separation between heaven and earth, the answer to that separation is firstly Christ. It's firstly Christ. See, Jesus was the God-man. Have you heard that? He was the God-man. And what that means is that he was fully God and he was fully man. And what that means is, is that Jesus stood in the gap, in the chasm between heaven and earth, between creation and creator, being both God and man. And he brought the two into one. He was the bridge, the reuniter, 
of heaven and earth. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9 says, Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. As a plan for the fullness of time. In other words, this is what he's doing for eternity. To unite all things in Christ. Things in heaven, things on earth. The mystery is that Jesus has brought back together the two spaces that were incompatible, the two spaces that have been divorced, torn apart, separated for all of human history. God and his creation are now reunited, reconnected because of Christ, the God-man, the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate high priest. God has stepped out of his creation and stepped into his, pardon me, God has stepped out of the place of the creator and stepped into his creation. The Gospel of John says it like this in the opening statement. John the Apostle says, the word, speaking of Jesus, became flesh and what? Dwelt among us. That phrase, dwelt among us, is basically saying tabernacled. Jesus came and tabernacled among us. He he pitched a tent, as Eugene Peterson would say. He pitched a tent. He lived among us. What? What John's communicating here is that Jesus moved into his creation. He moved into his creation for the purpose of reconnecting to it. He stepped into it in order to unite the two. What Jesus becomes in that moment is a mobile temple. Wherever Jesus is at, the glory of God is. Wherever Jesus moves around, the holiness and the glory of God is available. But Jesus wasn't confined to a space. He moved around. And wherever he moved around, he brought the glory of the Lord with him. Uniting heaven and earth together. It's an incredible reality. When Jesus died on the cross, what happened? The second that it happened, he said, what, it was finished? And then something happened. A veil was torn, right? What was the veil? The veil was a reminder of what happened at the garden. What happened at the garden? Adam and Eve sinned, and they got kicked out. And an angel was there to guard. You know what was stitched on the veil of the tabernacle and the temple? an angel, to remind them that they were kicked out of the presence, kicked out of the glory, kicked out of the holiness of God's space, that he had left his creation. And in the moment that Jesus takes his last breath on the cross and says it is finished, the veil is torn. Now that's cool. But what's even cooler is what happens the next second. Immediately, a Gentile Roman soldier looks at Jesus and all of a sudden has this amazing insight. Maybe he was the son of God. (laughs) So what's happening in that moment is that the glory of the Lord is getting out of the temple. See, I always thought it the other way. I always thought the veil is torn. Yeah, we can get in. No, 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 no. The veil is torn. The Lord has gotten out. Because Jesus, the God-man, stood in the gap, bringing heaven and earth back together, creation and creator reconnected, and therefore his glory and his presence is now unleashed on the earth. Is anybody excited about that? Man, I thought salvation was just about our sin getting forgiven. Well, yeah, that's part of it. There's a lot more going on on the cross than just your sins being paid for. The glory of God was unleashed on the earth that moment. That's exciting stuff. But that's not the fullness of what Paul says. He says it's Christ, what? In you. It's not just Christ that's the mystery, although, you know, that's true. It's the mystery is Christ in you. In you. In who? In the church. It's Christ in you. Now, Paul could have said 
It's you in Christ. He said it all the time. All through the New Testament, there's like a million places he says, in Christ you have this, in Christ you have that, in Christ you have this. That's not what he says here. He says the mystery is Christ in you. The fact that Christ lives within his church and lives within you individually is a profound mystery. We take it for granted, you know? We're like, yeah, big deal, I know. I learned that in preschool. I learned that in school or in, uh, in, in, in Sunday school. That Jesus lives in my heart, big deal. Guys, Jesus lives in you. See, I just can't make it, I just can't make it amazing because it's just so common. We already know that. To Paul, it was the most life-changing, profound revelation <laughs> that the God of the universe would live in him, that he could become a temple, that the place that Paul could never even get to go into, the place that he just saw up on the hill, that the, the holy of holy place, the place that only the high priest could go into, where the glory of the Lord, and he read stories about Moses and how Moses saw the glory of the Lord. Paul, he never got to see the glory of the Lord. And then in an instant, Jesus himself appears before him and he says, Paul, I'm gonna live in you. That's profound. The God of the universe lives within us. What that means is that the glory of the Lord is released on the earth through us. Through us, we are containers of his glory, mobile containers. The glory doesn't live in this building. The glory doesn't live in a church. The glory doesn't live in a certain place. Okay, The glory of the Lord lives in you, and you carry it around wherever you go. And wherever you go, it's spilled out, and it's spread, like, just like Jesus. You are temples. We are, I mean, this is, this is basic New Testament theology, but it's incredible. We are the temple of the living God. We are living stones fitly joined together, Christ being the cornerstone and the capstone. We bring his glory with us. When we gather, when we come together, his glory is there because Christ in you, the hope of glory. God takes up residency in you. That's a phenomenal reality. It's not just Christ in you, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Why does he put that on the end? Why is it Christ in you, the hope of glory? Because it's our union with Christ that is our absolute assurance of our eternity with Christ. Because he lives within you, he has become one with you. And because he's come one with you, you can believe that he has it all taken care of. <laughs> Ephesians 1, 13, says, In him... Being Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The idea is, is that if you wanted something sealed, you didn't want anyone to touch it, you sealed it with wax and with your seal, and the highest power in the land had his signet ring, and once that signet ring went in the wax, if anybody opened that envelope or whatever it was, he would answer to the highest power in the land. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit, sealed because Christ is in you. You are his. He has claimed you. This is good news. Christ in you the hope of glory. Paul was so overcome by this reality that he spent his entire life preaching it. He saw it as the point of everything. It wasn't something that he just threw in the junk drawer of his life and said, yeah, now I'm saved, I'm a Christian. No, he said, this, this mystery is so profound, it is so valuable, it is so precious, it's so powerful that I'll spend my life stewarding it. There's some amazing implications to this mystery. 
One of the implications is that we become, like I said, the mobile glory of God. We, we, we carry around with us the glory of God. We become the fulfillment of the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate is when God said, go make babies and fill the earth. He does that now through the church, right? There's another implication that's incredible here, though. You guys understand that where, where you sit in human history, in God's redemptive narrative, where you sit, you have more understanding about what God had planned all along than any believer ever had before. Again, we just take that for granted. But you have been given the privilege of bearing a revelation into what God had planned all along. We get to know this stuff. You know what God told Abraham when he called him? Go there. That's all he told him. Didn't tell him anything. He didn't give him a Bible. He didn't give him a systematic theology. He didn't even give him a name. <laughs> he didn't give him his name. He didn't give him the name. He just said, hey, you, go there. And Abraham said, okay. And he did it. I'm going to talk about faith. I mean, Moses, he, he knew very little. He, he learned more as things went along, but he knew very little. He, he, who are you, Lord? I am. I am that I am. What does that mean? What do you mean you are what you are? Like, you want me to go tell Pharaoh you, I am? What does that mean? I mean, these guys had to make serious decisions in life with very little information. You and I stand in a place where we have an incredible resource of information into God's plan and mind. He's told us so much. We have so much. We have so much. A compendium of God's insight into his mind and plan. We get to know things that everyone in the Old Testament wished they would have known. Listen to 1 Peter. Actually, I'll put it up on the screen here. 1 Peter 1.10. Concerning this salvation, that's the mystery, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. In other words, the prophets were so curious about what the mystery, the fulfillment of the mystery was going to be, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and me. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. I love this. Things into which angels long to look. Do you understand that your understanding, O believer, of the mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, is so profound that angelic beings that know way more than I will ever know look at it and they go, wow, I don't understand that. That's a profound mystery. That's a, that's a treasure. Do you understand that? We don't think about knowledge as being a treasure anymore because we all have cell phones. And we think, you know, what, what is knowledge is cheap now. I can get knowledge whenever I want. You have a question? I'll go to YouTube. I'll answer it. It's not the way Paul thought about this because it wasn't mere intellectual understanding. It was a deep, profound reality. And Paul treasured it. He treasured it, knowing that all of the prophets and all the Old Testament authors and all the people of faith and all of human history longed to understand what he now knew and now preached and that we now possess and understand that Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Do you think about the gospel that way? Do you realize how precious a thing you hold? How precious a thing you've been given the stewardship to bear? We take it for granted. We take it for You have been given the key to unlocking, as verse 3 says, look at it in our passage, as verse 3 says, all hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You've been given that key. All wisdom. 
and treasures of knowledge. You know, sometimes we, we feel kind of um, stupid when, when, when we hear the intellectual liberal scholars tell us how stupid we are for believing in Christ. The reality is <laughs> we have the key to unlocking all hidden treasures and wisdom. It's kind of like somebody that has a telescope and they're looking at it the wrong way. <laughs> and they're like, man, everything's so far away. Christ comes along and says, actually, hey, I'm the front of it. You look at everything through me and it all makes sense. Trying to understand this world through anything other than Christ just doesn't make sense. And guys, listen, you have the key. You have the key to understanding all wisdom and all understanding. It's profound. You hold the cipher to every human need. But with great power comes great responsibility, right? We've all seen Spider-Man, okay? With great power comes great responsibility. So, so for Paul, he, he had this mystery, the revelation of this mystery, but he didn't just see it as something, okay, I get it now. He saw it as something to steward. He saw it as something that was placed in his care. He saw it as a divinely appointed stewardship. So take a look at verse 25. I want you to see this. Actually, start in 24. I rejoice in my suffering for your sake and in my flesh. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. And notice here, of which I became a minister, note that word, according to the stewardship, note that word, from God. That was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. So here's how Paul viewed himself. First, he calls himself a minister. That's the word diakonos. It's servant. It's actually a table servant. He says, I exist to be a servant of who? Of the church for the stewardship. The stewardship literally means house manager. He says, I've been given a, a managerial role regarding the mystery. My role is to manage the caretaking of the mystery. It's kind of funny in my house. Oh, by the way, a house manager is a butler. That's what, that's, what, <laughs> that's what a house manager is, okay? And in my house, my kids all argue about who doesn't have to be the butler. Uh, so Scouty, my three-year-old, comes in, and uh, she's, she's upset. She's crying. And we're like, what's wrong? Miley said, I can't be the princess. She said, I have to be the butler. <laughs> it was so funny. We're like, that's like a four-letter word in our house, like the, the butler, you know? Um, anyways, that's neither here nor there. Paul is saying, he says, I, I see myself as a servant and a steward, a house manager of the mystery. It's something that Christ gave me, and he gave it to me for a reason, to do something with it, not just to hold on to it, not just to stick it in my head and put it on my shelf and say, yay, now I get this. Paul saw himself as a steward. So that's why he says, I was made a minister according to stewardship from God. Now I want to spend the rest of our time, just a few more minutes here, uh, talking about what the stewardship of the mystery meant to Paul and what it should mean to us. So we're going to give you three things. Three things that the stewardship means. Number one, stewarding the mystery means bearing the weight of its significance. Bearing the weight of its significance. Paul, this, Paul saw this weight of the mystery as an intense weight. Have you guys ever seen the movie The Post? Uh, it's Tom Hanks. It's a really good movie. You should watch it, actually. I think it's, I think it's clean. Um, 
<laughs> hope so. Uh, this is Tom Hanks' movie. It's really an amazing story. It's about how um, some documents, some really important documents had been leaked about the Vietnam War and about the whole thing was a sham and that the government had been lying to people. And those documents had been leaked out. And uh, Tom Hanks, who runs the Washington Post, he gets access to those documents. And he has to send one of his guys to go get the documents. And this is back in the day before you had thumb drives and computers. And the, the documents are in this big file box. And these things are literally like massively valuable. If anyone knew they had them, I mean, they'd be in big trouble. And so the guy has to take the document box on the airplane. And he like rents a seat just to put the document box next to him. And he's just really nervous. You know, and I, I, I think the, the stewardess is like, do you want me to check that? He's like, nope, we're good. This is... This is important. Okay, there's a stewardship of the information that he has, and it's severe, and it's heavy, and it's important, and he wants to get it where it's supposed to go. That's the way Paul thought about the gospel. That's the way Paul thought about the mystery. It wasn't just knowledge for the sake of knowledge. He carried it with a great weight. Look at verse 29. He says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Verse 1, How great a struggle, he says, I have for you. The knowledge that Paul carried, he carried it heavily. Because he knew the seriousness and the importance and the intensity of the weight. And I want to ask you guys, how seriously, how heavily do you carry this mystery that you've been given? How serious do you take it? I don't mean serious like you can't ever make a joke. I mean, how, how valuable, like, like my friend Ryan back there holding this brand new baby girl. He, he's carrying her very carefully. Okay? In fact, you, you couldn't rip her from his hands, right? Papa Bear would come out. She's valuable to him. And in the same way to Paul, he saw the mystery as the most valuable possession that he owned. This mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. And he carried it with a severe weight. But he carried it joyously. He carried it joyously. Look at verse 24. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking. It, so for Paul, it wasn't just a heavy weight. It was a joyous weight. He carried it joyfully. Have you ever carried a weight that was heavy but it was joyful? I just think of moms carrying babies. It's like, man, that's a heavy weight. My wife's sister just had her baby, and, and I held her yesterday, and I'm like, wow, you carried this thing around? But it's a joyous weight. It's a joyous weight because of the joy at the end of it, right? And for Paul, he carried the weight of the gospel, but it was a joyous weight. Being in prison for the gospel at this point when he wrote this was a joyous weight because he knew what it could do in them if they would just believe it, if they would just understand it. The second thing Paul saw about his stewardship. Stewarding the mystery means investing the power of its truth. Investing the power of its truth. Look at verse 25. Paul says, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. Why? To make the word of God fully known. So Paul saw his job, his stewardship, as investing the truth of the mystery into their lives, declaring the mystery. He didn't go bury it in his backyard. He saw it as an investment. You know, Jesus had a lot to say about investments, didn't he? he? He gave a lot of parables about someone who was given something valuable, and then they went and buried it in their backyard. He said, the, the, the revelation of the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory, the gospel, that's not something to be buried. That's something to be invested. And Paul said, I'm going to spend my entire life making that fully known to you. That was his goal, his focus. Now, let me say this. Your willingness to invest the mystery says a lot about your faith and its ability to transform. 
Your willingness to invest the mystery says a lot about your faith in whether it can transform. And some of you guys are saying, like, I don't, look, Sam, I know you want me to go evangelize. And some, by the way, some of you guys are incredible at what you do in that way. But some of you guys say, Sam, I know you want me to go evangelize and tell people about Jesus. I just can't do that. I don't know how. I don't have the right words. Okay? I want to encourage you with a few things. Number one, I want you to practice. Practice talking about the gospel. Where? With Christians. That's where we should be talking. Practice talking about the mystery so that it's so fluent, so that you're fluent in the language of gospel, in truth, in the mystery, so that when you talk to a non-believer, man, it just comes right out. I'd also encourage you to recognize that it's not your power that saves anybody. It's the message. The message is powerful. Paul was confident in the message. He said in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to transform lives. The gospel is the power. It's not your representation of it. It's not your presentation. Otherwise, we would never preach the gospel. We just let Billy Graham do it or whatever. He says, preach it. Preach the word. Preach the word. I was on the phone with one of my former college professors over at Pacific, and he was asking me questions about this and that, and the conversation was inconsequential. But right before he hung up the phone, he said, good to see you, Sam. Preach the word. And hung up. That was so cool. I was like, that's right. That's what I'm here to do. Preach the word. Preach the word. Preach the word. Well, Sam, you're a preacher. No, 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 no. All of you, listen to me. Preach the word. Preach the word. It's the gospel. It's the mystery that has the power. It's the power of Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the answer. Preach it. Tell people it. Tell each other it. Talk about it. Tell yourself it. Preach it to yourself. That's where the power is. It's not an intellectual uh, pursuits. It's in Christ and what he's done and who he is. And Paul believed that with every fiber in his being. That's why he spent his entire life preaching the gospel. Preach the word. Preach the word. He saw it as the answer to the problem for everyone. Look at verse 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning, note, everyone. Teaching, note, everyone with all wisdom that we may present, note, everyone mature in Christ. Who did Paul preach the gospel to? Come on, guys. Who did Paul want to see uh, grow in the gospel into full maturity? Who, who, did God, who, who did Paul think the gospel had the power to transform? Everybody. Well, Sam, that's universalism. No. Universalism is where you think everyone gets to go to heaven regardless of what they believe. Christianity is everyone gets to go to heaven if they believe this truth. Now, this is a sidetrack, but you need to hear this. Don't let anybody tell you that Christianity is universalism. It's not. No, I, I got to start over. I said that completely wrong. Don't ever let anyone tell you that Christianity is exclusive. That's the word I was looking for. Don't ever let anyone tell you that Christianity is exclusive because what they mean by exclusive is totally different than what you mean by exclusive. When they say exclusive, they mean it's exclusive because it doesn't allow everyone to believe their truth is equally valid. In reality, Christian, Christianity is the least exclusive religion because it is available to everyone. But it, the gospel does not say everyone's truth is equally valid. There's one truth, there's one way, and that truth and that way is available to everyone. And anyone who hears it and listens will be transformed. Paul believed that. 
And he preached it to everyone. The third thing, and the last thing, stewarding the mystery means nurturing the fruit of its work. Nurturing the fruit of the work. You know, Paul wasn't just interested in making converts, and neither are we. We're interested in what Jesus told us to do, which was to make disciples. Paul didn't just see the gospel as the front door to Christianity. He saw it as the whole house. He didn't just see the gospel as something that you throw out so people get saved and then you move on to the next person. Paul saw himself as someone who was meant to uh, reap a crop (laughs) of fruit that he had invested in. And you notice this in verse 28 of our text. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone what? Mature. For this I toil and struggle with all his energy. So Paul's point here is that, is that he isn't just making converts, he's making mature believers, and he's doing it by unpacking the mystery. He emphasizes maturity here. I'm going to say a statement, and I want you to hear it because I wrote it very carefully. Paul wasn't interested in transferring information. He was interested in transforming information. He wasn't interested in transferring information. He was interested in information that would transform. I got another picture for you. I kept seeing funny pictures this week. I don't know what it was. I just thought that was so funny. This is a perfect picture of what happens with most preaching. It's like you're getting information, but none of it's going in your mouth. You're getting more on you than in you. I mean, that's, that's the, the reality. True preaching should ignite our hearts. The gospel is meant to ignite our hearts. It's meant to transform our lives, transform our minds, not just to fill our heads, right? Okay, that's, that's the purpose. Jesus' indictment against the Pharisees was, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. They speak of me. Remember, he's the key. He's the answer. He's the mystery. Him in you, the hope of glory. So Paul's primary focus was not just to teach them knowledge, it was to transform them with truth. By the way, you might note this, true preaching always aims at the heart, not the mind. However, true preaching does not ever go around the mind. It goes through the mind. Don't ever let anyone tell you we shouldn't teach the Bible because we should just be going at the heart. God accesses the heart through the mind. Faith is not turning off your brain. Faith is not saying, you know what, there's no good, I just have to believe. No. It's, 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 not, it's not the way God works. He wants you to understand and he gets to get to your heart through your mind. Paul saw the gospel as the ultimate answer to the maturity of the Colossians. He saw it as the key to everything that they needed. And you guys might get tired of hearing me say this. I, we're a gospel-centered church and that means that you're gonna hear me talk about the gospel all the time. And it's not because I'm just seeing it where it isn't. It's there. This was the point. This is what Paul did. He preached the gospel. And his prayer was that they would have a deeper understanding of the gospel. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what he did. One last point here in verse 2, and this is a segue into our time we're about to have together. Notice what he says in verse 2. The key is, is he says, the way that you're going to get the mystery, the way the mystery is going to become real to you, is when your hearts are knit together in love. You get it together. You get it together. Um, Everything that we just looked at was written to a group of people. It wasn't written to a single person. And we read the Bible like it's written to a single person, but it wasn't. 
It was, it was, most of it was written to groups. Paul says, hey, I'm praying that you guys will get this, and I'm praying that you'll get it together. And in fact, your togetherness, having your hearts knit together, is your access into understanding the mystery. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ lives within you, singularly and plural. So there's something that really amazing that happens. I'm going to say this over and over again. The secret weapon to the church is the church. I, I'm, the secret ingredient to church is the church. I'm convinced of this. And it's like, the, it's like, to me, it's the most obvious thing in the world. How do we get a church to be healthy? Uh, you need the church to access the church. What does that mean? Most of church is coming and doing what you're doing right now. It's coming and sitting and listening to someone preach. And that's important. Okay, this is worth our attention and it needs careful thinking. But at the same time, if you just leave and never interact with each other, then you're not actually doing church. You're doing Listen to a sermon. (laughs) The secret weapon of the church is the church. You guys are edified when you are the church, when you come together, when you have conversation, when you dig in, when you practice preaching the gospel to each other. The other day I went to the pastor's breakfast here in Grants Pass. It's such a joy to get to go to that. Uh, And they made us do what I'm going to make you do. They made us, in circles, talk to each other. You know, and at first you're always like, can't I just eat breakfast and listen to someone talk and zone out? That'd be way easier. And they didn't do that. My buddy Mark Goins got up and he's like, hey, this is what we're going to do. You're going to sit and talk about this and and this and that. And he gave us some direction. And I stayed for an hour. I didn't want to leave. I walked away so encouraged by my other brothers, pastors in Christ. We're just sitting there talking and pouring out our hearts and praying for each other and encouraging each other and speaking gospel over each other. And I walked away this week going, we can never stop doing that at Philippi because we need the body We need the body. That's where the power is. Christ is in you, the hope of glory. And Paul's saying when your hearts are knit together, that's when you access it. Amen? So by way of conclusion, I just want to remind you, review. Number one, everyone is curious. Everyone is curious. Your coworker, your mom, your dad, Everyone that you know that's not a believer, they may pretend like they're not curious, but they are. They're curious because they know the world's broken and they don't know the answer. So that means everyone can hear the gospel because everyone is curious about the mystery of our brokenness. You have the answer to everyone's curiosity. Did you know that? You hold the answer. You hold the key. Christ is in you. The hope of glory. Oh, I don't know what to say. I don't have the right words. Christ is in you. He's in you. (laughs) He's going to do it. He's going to say it. You just start speaking. He'll lead you. You are a steward of the mystery of Christ. That's a high calling. I didn't look at the passage, but in Corinthians, Paul calls us ambassadors. You know how serious of a weight an ambassador is? You're literally the representation of an entire country to another country. Paul says, you're an ambassador. You represent me. That's a severe weight. It's a joyous weight. It's a heavy weight. You carry prize possession. It's so valuable. And God didn't give it to you just to bury it. He gave it to you to invest it. He gave it to you to invest it. So have confidence that the Spirit of God is within you and is able to reveal these mysteries like he did to Paul to those around you. Amen? Father, thank you so much for the mystery. Thank you that you are filling this earth with your glory right now in this age through the church. 
And in the age to come, Lord, you're just going to straight up show up and take it over. <laughs> you're going to establish your physical rule and reign on heaven. Heaven will come to earth fully, completely. Thank you, God, that we get to be a tabernacle, that we get to be a temple. And Lord, I pray that right now as we enter into conversation, Lord, as we have a discussion about this, Father, that you would speak through us, that we would feel boldness. Lord, that we would hear each other, listen to each other, learn about each other, pray for each other, encourage each other, and that your Holy Spirit would move, Lord, in this time. Father, we thank you for the Apostle Paul. We thank you that he stewarded the mystery well, and we pray we would do the same. In Jesus' name, amen.